This is a special edition of Minnesota Native News, COVID-19 Community Conversations with host Leah Lem. COVID-19 Community Conversations is supported by a grant from the Minnesota Department of Health. Anine, hello, I'm Leah Lem. Miigwech, and thank you for joining me for an in-depth conversation, exploring how Indian country in Minnesota is responding and adapting to the current pandemic health crisis. Today on the show, what are some ways we embrace a healthy lifestyle while keeping an eye to our communities? And we'll hear some nuts and bolts about COVID testing in Indian country and current challenges our relatives face in getting treatment. So, we hear from two people who are committed to health for Native communities in Minnesota. Danny Piratos is a community member of the Boys Fort Band of Chippewa. She's a mother and is passionate about food, body sovereignty, and food access. And reporter Melissa Townsend talks with Jackie Dion, who's the director of American Indian Health at the Minnesota Department of Health and is the public health liaison for tribes and urban Indian communities. All that coming up, but first... Chairman Daryl Seeky, Sr. from Red Lake Nation, spoke to KAXC's Heidi Holton and John Bauer about the Red Lake Nation's tribal policies that have been put into place to help keep community members safe. There's been a mixed response towards the policies that include curfews, a medical martial law, COVID testing, and encouraging people to wear masks to help prevent the spread of the virus. We're in uncharted territory in a constantly fluctuating situation. But what is constant is the need to be mindful and safe. Chairman Siki has these words. I want to encourage everyone, not just Red Lake members. I want to encourage everyone in the state of Minnesota to wear masks, social distancing, believe, believe this virus is contagious and it's dangerous for your relatives, your children, the elders, and the vulnerable. This is not a joke. This is real. We, we need, this shouldn't be fear. This is about the health of the people of, the, of Minnesota. It's nothing to play around with. This is real. We gotta get that word out there. We gotta have our people wear masks. And I know I'm called all kinds of names here on the reservation, but But all I'm trying to do is keep our people healthy and so they can live good lives. That was Chairman Siki from the Red Lake Nation encouraging Minnesota to take the virus seriously. And that's a common thread throughout these conversations. Understanding the virus and taking action is how we can get ourselves and our communities through this pandemic. And joining me now to talk more about how she's getting through the pandemic while also working to support the health of her community is Danny Pirados. Bonjour, Danny. Welcome. Bonjour, Leah. Thank you. Can you please take a moment to introduce yourself and let us know like your tribal affiliation and what your different roles are in the arena of food and food access? I am Danny Pirados, and I am a proud member of the Boys Fort Band of Chippewa. Um, in particular, very proud of coming from Onamani Zagiagan, uh, which is Lake Vermilion, and in our language is Lake of the Sunset Glow. It is so pretty. Um, and so my, my roles in all things food, I have a few now. Um, it started with my mom's um, idea for an indoor aeroponic 
community supported agriculture farm um, to serve um, food deserts because aeroponics is um, pretty efficient um, in terms of uh, not using a lot of water um, and you can grow indoors. So it is climate resilient. Of course, all this crazy climate change going on. Um, and mm -hmm. then I uh, now I'm newly employed at the Rutabaga Project out of Virginia, Minnesota um, as its new food access coordinator. And so I've been with them about a month with Kelsey Ganser my local food hero. She has, with COVID pandemic, she's linked up um, the Rutabaga Project with these food boxes, freely distributed um, up to us. And from our organization, uh, partnering with Arrowhead Transit, distributes them throughout Northern Minnesota in the service area. So these boxes have fresh, healthy produce in them. Now we're getting into the meat and dairy markets. And mainly why I'm in this and so passionate and invested in it is in studying the food sovereignty movement and in comparing that um, ideal of healthy, local, affordable, culturally appropriate, environmentally sound food <laughs> practices, comparing it to what has been the norm for me so long and all these veils have been kind of pulled away and I've gone through you know, all steps of grief, <laughs> denial, depression, anger, um, that now through, you know, acceptance, it's more like, okay, well, what, what can we do um, with what we've been given and what we know now um, about, you know, food systems? So. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Lake of the Sunset Glow. I mean, that sounds... <laughs> That sounds pretty. That sounds gorgeous. So pretty. Yeah, the sunsets are just amazing. <laughs> Let's see. I, I want to make sure to ask you about this. Boys Fort has its own resolutions, uh, like Chairman Siki was talking for the Red Lake Nation, as they have every right to, you know, tribal sovereignty and to, to help ensure the safety of the community. So, for example, Boys Fort has the resolution issuing a quarantine order to a person residing on the reservation with restrictions and penalties for not following those orders, like a fine, or even upon multiple violations, temporary or permanent banishment from the reservation. So they're like, sounds like they're taking it very seriously. Have you heard a reaction or do you have a reaction from those resolutions? I, I think they're a great thing for setting the standard. However, mm -hmm. in terms of enforcement, Mm -hmm. banishment it, it does fit within the realm of tribal sovereignty it is something that um i guess ojibwe people have had practiced along the lines of shunning to modify behavior mm -hmm. i just wonder about some people's capacity to even adhere to the regulation um and i'll i'll speak candidly about my personal experience so a long time ago over three years ago i was an alcoholic um, and then I have um, drug abuse in my history. So even if, you know, let's say former Danny were quarantined, of course, I would do my best. But again, I can justify anything under the influence, although it's not really my choice. They call it a disease of choice. So banishing folks that have a disease of choice and maybe some behavioral and mental health issues we're just making it even harder for them to survive the COVID pandemic. But then again, what are you going to do for the greater community? I did appreciate Boyce Fort when they put a boundary around mm -hmm. our region. 
And so it wasn't just the reservation, like you can't leave the res, but I don't know, 30 mile, 40 miles south, and then maybe a hundred miles north around Net Lake and Orr. Um, but if you left that boundary, it was just required that you had to self-quarantine for two weeks. Thanks for sharing that. And, you know, I, I never actually really thought about that. Like, um, what if somebody's like under the influence or something like that, like, and, you know, out and about when they're yeah um, positive when they've tested positive for covid so that's a really good point and so you know you mentioned being super anxious how are you doing oh. like <laughs> how are you getting i know like i i have a little i have my own um anxiety too so i i'm with you um but how are you doing like how are you how are you spending your time to make sure that you're in a good place yeah it, it's been really tough a lot of prayer a lot of sitting um, and even while I'm anxious and even while I'm scared, throwing those prayers up to creator, I call upon, um, this might be a little odd, but this is what I do and this is what helps. Is I imagine um, my grandmas on the mm. other side in the spirit realm and I kind of in my mind's eye gather them together as a little grandma mm. council. And I'll sit and pray and talk with them and kind of imagine myself like near a lake or in the woods, like just with them talking. But just that sense of our lineage and the power of what these women survived, um, just calling upon their strength in today's age. And I'm like, well, if they could do that without all of the beautiful resources that I have and that they did not. Like right now, we're able to communicate over this computer, even though I grateful yeah. about having to be on the computer too much. But what a cool thing that we can communicate. And I think that's the biggest thing, too, is this instant communication. Whenever I need somebody, you know, I have this phone that I can call somebody or I have Facebook Messenger to connect with people, group chats mm -hmm. and feeding information back and forth to stay up to date on things has been really helpful. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the grandma council. Yeah. I mean, what... <laughs> We need that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. And that's, um, I've seen a sign in the cities that said, let the grandmas um, lead the justice system. Um, mm -hmm. And let the grandmas lead the food system, too. <laughs> there you go. Let, let the grandmas lead the country. There should be like <laughs> grandmas and aunties council party. <laughs> yes. Like, what is it? Daughters of the. Oh, yeah. The, the the Daughters of the American Revolution. That's it. Yes. The <laughs> I remember that from Gilmore Girls. <laughs> okay. Grounds of the maybe Native American Revolution. Or there something. you go. You're listening to a special edition of Minnesota Native News, COVID-19 Community Conversations, supported by a grant from the Minnesota Department of Health. I'm Leah Lem, and with me is Danny Piratos, and today we're exploring how we can choose to be healthy, how we make those personal choices, and how we can do that in the context of sovereignty. Now, we're going to add another voice to the conversation. At the Minnesota Department of Health, Jackie Dion is the person dedicated to thinking about the health and well-being of Native people here. She is from the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa and serves as Director of American Indian Health at the Minnesota Department of Health and Public Health Liaison for Tribes and Urban Indian Communities. 
Dion doesn't speak for tribes, but does work closely with all 11 tribal governments. As Sovereign Nations, Jackie has been working with the 11 tribes in Minnesota on the response to COVID-19. She recently talked with our reporter, Melissa Townsend, about testing, managing positive cases, and making life and death decisions if there is a surge in the number of people hospitalized for COVID-19. When somebody thinks that they might be sick, you know, they're advised to go get testing. So if you're on a reservation, where can you get tested? And who is responsible for that? If you're a tribal member and you live on the reservation, you can go to the tribal clinic or the Indian Health Service to get tested. If a person has private insurance and they have an employer, say they work for Amazon or the public school system or whatever, they can go into their managed care or their private clinic and get tested. So it really depends on the person and their preference where they want to go. But if you're a member and you are uh, eligible for the tribal clinic services, all the tribes and Indian Health Service are doing COVID-19 testing. So you can go right in. And I know there's a push to not have to pay for testing in Minnesota. Is this free? Oh, yeah. Okay. I saw Lower Sioux earlier this month was doing like the drive-in test. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that you can just go up and get a test and not have to make an appointment to see a primary doctor. And these uh, tests are sent off the reservation. That testing lab does not report to just the tribe's public health authority. They report back to the primary provider who happens to be on the reservation. And then because of state law, they report to MDH. Have there been barriers for tribes and tribal members to get testing? Yeah, they have the same challenges that states do in terms of availability and, you know, testing materials. And mail uh, has a grant through the state of Minnesota. Uh, a big part of that is to provide testing to vulnerable populations. And all American Indians throughout the state qualify under that vulnerable population category. So Mayo can send those tests to the tribes and at no cost, they will run the sample through Mayo and send it back to the tribe. And it's at no cost to the tribe and no cost to the individual. And then the tribe is also getting testing materials and testing equipment through Indian Health Service with the Abbott ID Now machine where they can actually run a test right in the clinic and within a half an hour find out uh, the testing result of that person except for the fact that Indian Health Service gets an allocation at the federal level for the Bemidji area, and then the Bemidji area has to allocate those out to each of the 30-some tribes across this service area. And so at the beginning of COVID, the tribes were just getting the machine and the ability to do up to 20 tests. I don't know what the capacity is now. I just continues to wait for the federal government to give them these testing supplies to run the Abbott ID now. The Abbott ID now is not a good way to test community-wide testing. It just doesn't have that capacity to wait a half an hour and, and run somebody through and have them wait. It could take you 40 hours to do a small number of people. Oh, indeed. Right. What's the most consistent kind of concern or question you hear from tribes when you're when you're having conversations with them in your position? Most of it has to do with the contact tracing and case investigation that overlap both on and off the reservation. You know, who is following up with close contacts of people that are on the reservation, but most of the close contacts are off. 
Um, how do they work together in terms of figuring out how to do an isolation and quarantine both on and off the reservation of tribal members that are overlapping? You know, if you're a tribal member and you're enrolled in any one of the Minnesota tribes, doesn't necessarily mean that you live there. You can live in Duluth and be an enrolled member of Fond du Lac, uh, use Fond du Lac services, but you actually live in, in the city of Duluth. So if you're COVID positive, is the tribe going to provide services and do follow-up uh, on that individual or is local public health or will both? And whose role is to isolate and then do the contact tracing for that person? Some of the bigger tribes are like, we'll do it. We have the capacity. We already make all these calls. We know this family. We know these people. Some of the tribes are saying, we can't do much with the capacity we have except for getting a hold of people that live on the reservation. Local public health is going to have to try to contact everybody else. You know, I've been looking at the case rates per population, right, American Indian, Asian, Black, uh, how many cases in the community. That's where the American Indian population way more in the hospital, way yep. more ICU. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so um, for the folks that are positive for COVID that are American Indian, most of those are urban, although they're all over the state, but for the most part, most of them are showing up in Hennepin County and Ramsey County. And when they are testing positive at a higher rate, not at a higher number, but at a higher rate, American Indians that are COVID positive are being admitted to the hospital and into the ICU. And it's most likely going to be the local hospital, um, Hennepin County, Ramsey County. In northern Minnesota, it's going to be their trauma one hospitals, Sanford uh, Hospital in Bemidji and Fargo. If there is a surge in a specific region across the state, the concern is decisions are made on who gets a ventilator and who doesn't. Um, There's some ethics around that and some decision-making trees and the racism and the bias that we see. And so there's some concern that if the decision-making tree is for who's most likely to benefit or stay alive, if you have an American Indian person with comorbidities, um, they're already at a disadvantage to being given a ventilator, right? To somebody who's white, you know, pretty pretty good health, uh, needs a ventilator, and will get past it and survive. So there's all of this health inequities that we've seen in the population all the way up until COVID that makes COVID even more of an ethical dilemma for somebody who's American Indian and struggling and has all of these comorbidities as an elder and doesn't get a ventilator and somebody else does. So all of these ethics come into play once the system is overwhelmed. Yeah. With those decisions. And that's happening now across the country. And that's why we see more people dying who are people of color because of that whole decision making. And right away, African American and American Indians are already inequitable in that decision tree coming in with more health problems because of the health inequities. Is there a conversation about taking that into account that these disparities are happening and we need to change the way we make the decisions about who gets the ventilator and who doesn't? You know, who will survive and who won't are decisions made in those emergency rooms and in that trauma situation and what's the best use of resources in terms of being able to keep somebody alive 
it puts to light the fact that we have such huge health inequities in the state of Minnesota. In order for that decision tree to be something different, we have to work on the fact that we all have the ability to be healthy um, no matter what the color of our skin is, and that just has not been true. The decision-making tree always lies on the fact that uh, we're not as healthy and less likely to survive. And that is a problem in Minnesota. You know, those end decisions that are made are going to continue to perpetuate the fact that we're going to die from COVID because we're unhealthy from the very get-go. Yeah. Wow. That is a really... um, It is. When it comes down to these scarce resources, it is. And if there's a surge in any one area, tribal leaders and tribal health directors have been very concerned that as folks get admitted into ICUs or get admitted into the hospitals, those folks are not going to be given ventilators because they're more likely to die. And I can imagine what that does to the trust, right, which is already fragile in these public health uh, institutions, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, the other part, and this is not just with American Indians, this is true in other populations of color, Hmong, the Asian, the African-American. If I'm feeling sick and my symptoms aren't so bad, you know, I'm going to just try to weather it out at home and then you get really sick. You're not wanting to go get tested because in your mind, if you don't get tested, then you're not going to end up in the hospital. If you never know you have COVID, you're just going to try to hope it passes, right? And so by not getting tested, then you don't know that you're spreading it. But if you get tested, there's that fear that you're going to end up in the hospital. And so it's just one of those things where I think if everybody felt like, you know, if I end up in the hospital, I'm going to have the same ability to live as anybody else, you know, people would go get tested. Right. But it's just one of those things. And, you know, this happens more with elders. If I don't know, then it must not be true. Well, thanks for your time and all your insight, and I hope you continue to stay healthy. Yeah. Yep, you too. You take care. That was reporter Melissa Townsend speaking to Jackie Dion, who is the Director of American Indian Health at the Minnesota Department of Health and is the public health liaison for tribes and urban Indian communities. And here with me is Danny Puratos. So, Danny, lots to digest there, but uh, Jackie Dion mentions this decision tree. She says, who will survive and who won't are decisions made in those emergency rooms and in that trauma situation. So who's more likely to survive? Who's more likely to get those scarce resources that are available when, you know, it's people, it's doctors and nurses making these decisions. So if you have a person who's native, are they more likely to have a comorbidity, right? And how does that play into that decision-making process? So there can be this assumption, even an assumption, whether or not it's right or wrong, um, that a Native person is just less healthy and has these comorbidities. So therein lies one facet of inequity. Yeah, I... I honestly haven't thought about that situation before, um, before the interviewer hearing it. So realizing that it is that subjective and you said the decision-making tree there and, and just, I like to speak in, through stories 
And so what, what worries me about that situation is, um, I always go back to my grandma's. Um, my grandma had pneumonia and went to a local hospital and, um, with the pneumonia, she was there, but she wasn't responsive, um, in terms of, she could barely kind of talk, she didn't know what was going on. She could kind of talk and then they just start ripping her clothes off her and they're males helping because, um, they were the EMTs. I'm just like, you know, she's still here, you know, you could at least pretend and give the grace of like, okay, here's what we're doing. You know, you talk the patient through what is going on around them, even if they're not even if you don't think they're present with you, um, just as a courtesy, I'd say. And plus I was there and I was surprised they did that with me there. Um, and maybe they were just hustling to make sure she got treated right away, but it didn't, it, it seemed, it seemed like there wasn't a thought that this wasn't a human being, that this wasn't my grandma. And so I was like, Hey, like you can ask. And that made me very scared thereafter to, um, you know, not be there and do other things. Um, and so I, I would have to do these little sessions with some of the nurses and the doctor and the doctor did save her life and God bless him for it. Um, but I'm saying, Hey, like this isn't against you in particular, but my grandma actually did not want to go to that hospital because of the legacy of how native people have been treated in these hospitals. Mm -hmm. I was in a therapy session talking about my depression and anxiety. And I told my, my therapist, I said, I feel scared all the time. And I feel like I have no value. And he looked at me and he said, well, that makes perfect sense. And I was shocked because aren't your therapist supposed to build you up and make you feel all warm inside. And, and I'm like, Oh, I'm like what? Oh, I am crap. Damn it. No. He's like, no, no, no. Look at your demographic. Native women go missing and die and nobody cares. And put that in a hospital setting um, when they're making determ determinations on who's going to get the ventilator. God, I'm, I'm, it's scary because the odds from my personal experience and what I've seen is uh, they're going to, uh, I almost want to make me cry. We're not going to be number one for those ventilators. Well, and that goes to, to what Jackie Dion was saying about, this reticence, this not wanting even to go in and get tested because, you know, why bother? Let, we're just going to, we're just going to weather it out, she said, um, even if they're feeling sick. So it's no wonder sometimes, and it's really heartbreaking. With the work you do with healthy foods can hopefully reverse out some of those co comorbidities, um, at least, you know, move the move the needle and help those statistics and prove them wrong. Like <laughs> Native people are healthy people, you know, always have been, always will be, have the knowledge to be healthy, have the culture to be healthy. But the like you said, the, the colonization practices um, and the, the food systems that are in place that keep people sick. <laughs> it's a positive it's a posi it's the positive direction yes. that you're that you're helping move your community into the coolest thing is it can be done you know within one lifetime um within one person's life it can't food healthy food can heal and we're relearning these teachings that food is medicine so the more healthy food we can get i mean it's just kind of a, a ch I, I see it as casting fishing lines out there the more opportunities people have to try new healthy foods experience healthy foods 
then the more it becomes like the norm for us again and to reclaim those uh, for ourselves just as much as we claim the wild race. Yes. Great. Well, Chimigwech, Danny Proudis for taking the time to talk today. We hear so much about inequities and they're very real and have life and death consequences, but I hear so much strength and hope from the people I talk to. And in many cases, caring for our own health helps care for our family's health and our community's health. Thank you, McWaitch, and I wish you health. I'm Leah Lem. Minnesota Native News Special Edition COVID-19 Community Conversations is supported by the Minnesota Department of Health.